In this edition of the Granted Podcast, editor Ka Bradley speaks with Madeline Tien about her book, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which has recently been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. They talk about translating the sensation of music for a reader, the importance of writing about women of color, and the Chinese conceptual framework of time. So, you have written an incredibly beautiful, epic novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, um, and so I suppose the first question I wanted to ask was, why tackle such a huge subject? You know, when I when I started, I thought I was writing about something very specific, which was the 1989 demonstrations in Tiananmen Square. That's where I, that's where I had started, and then, and because it was something I remembered so vividly from my teenage years, watching it all unfold on 24-hour news, and it had stayed with me the the six weeks of demonstrations and the many points where it looked like things could have turned in a very different direction. As I was thinking about it over the years, I started to think about the students, but also the, you know, the one million Beijing citizens that came into the streets, mm-hmm. and especially that older generation, and what gave them the courage to stand up to the government, and what made them come into the streets to want to protect, in many ways, their children and another generation. So I think that's why it ended up going backwards into the Cultural Revolution, and I'd been writing about Cambodia before that, mm-hmm. and the Cambodian genocide, and I, one thing that I'd been thinking a lot about were the musicians. I started thinking about what was it about music that could be so threatening, because mm-hmm. we often know about the writers um, um, who are targeted by totalitarian regimes, but musicians... It's another way in to think about what's threatening to this consolidation of power. My knowledge of classical music is limited to knowing it exists. Yes. Um, but as I was reading, as I was reading the novel, I felt um, I felt moved to put on the music as I was reading about oh, it to, to hear what you know what they were hearing, mm-hmm. to learn what they were learning. Um, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about that kind mm-hmm. of the difficulty of writing that music and translating the sensation of music for a. It was um, some of the most challenging, uh, one of the biggest challenges of writing the book because I'm not a musician and I I can play piano very poorly. (laughs) I learned for a few years when I was a kid, so I can read music, but that's the limit of it. But I was thinking about the movement of artistic practices and artistic expression and how we take up one tool that might come from far away and use it to express a very personal self. So, for instance, I was trained as a ballet dancer for a long, long time. And it's interesting to take the um, the Western classical dance model but use it to express it was an immigrant Chinese kid, you know, and how those two things don't seem at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. That ballet for me was a form of very deep personal expression. And I think in the case of these Chinese musicians at the Shanghai Conservatory in the 1960s in a very political climate, in a time that is trying to make a modern Chinese self and to figure out what um, modern Chinese revolutionary identity is going to look like. And then, on the other hand, to express that through Beethoven or Bach Mm -hmm. or Prokofiev or Shostakovich, but also express something that is very particular to the Chinese identity at that moment in time. I was going for a kind of symphonic feeling, mm-hmm. you know, that it's like there are many um, motifs, there are many um, musical themes running through, and these are the characters' lives, and they all are part of a, a fabric 
of history and of um, expression. And they will be dissonant at times, and they will come into a kind of harmony at times. And but it's it's a constant folding and refolding of those musical themes. Themes. Yeah, I wonder if we come back to this idea of the modern Chinese self. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about how love and desire has always has to be secondary to the revolution. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about love in this book. There's a really beautiful line where um, Big Mother Knife says that her sister was the great love of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got sisters, so this made me very emotional when I read it. Um, and I, f- I felt that you give equal importance to the, the love and passion of family as you do to the love and passion of romantic entanglements. Mm-hmm. Um, quite often it, felt, it seemed to me that the, um, the relationships between brothers and sisters or cousins um, had that same, like, I hesitate to use the word romantic, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean, it had that same kind of knotted importance. Mm-hmm. That's... That's very true, I think, and and there's a passion. There's a passion in the. In a way, it's it's a kind of resistance because what is so painful, and I think this is you know I'll probably refer to the Cambodia book a lot because they 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 really speak to each other, and it's true in Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge and true in China during the Cultural Revolution, that the family unit um, was a threat to the totalitarian ideology mm-hmm. because it meant that your allegiances were to the to this circle around you, to your mother, your father, your sister, your cousin, and so on, rather than to the centralized power, which in this case would be the Communist Party of China and Mao Zedong. So there were many mechanisms put in place to divide the family, so that allegiance always had to be to the government, not to your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that love in the families is a form of defiance, mm-hmm. and 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 the, and stating that no, this love has a meaning, and it doesn't mean that I don't love my country. It doesn't mean that I don't want a better or much more just country. But that doesn't mean that um, other kinds of love are impure. For a book filled with music and language and um, discussion, there's a lot about silence Mm -hmm. and the value of silence. I think Sparrow at one point says, he was thinking about the way the sun, when it it fills the sky, it blots out the sight of the stars and the moon. Mm -hmm. So is sound a form of deafness? Mm -hmm. So what is silence? Mm -hmm. Um, And leading on from that, the idea that there are some things that we we don't have words for and we can't write about. The difficulty of writing, in fact, about the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the Khmer Rouge. how do you find that balance of finding the right language to write about these things? That, I think, is the fundamental heart of this book, is how to find the language and what happens when everything that you know how to express, whether that's through language itself or through music or through art, has been co-opted or taken away or literally stripped away from you. Is Do you speak or do you not speak? Is, is every word that you speak then... Um, compromised. Mm. I was really affected reading an essay about um, Shostakovich, and Shostakovich at one point was called up, um, criticized for his his music Mm. under Stalin, and he went on at great length about his um, loyalty to the Communist Party, and one of his colleagues said, "Ah, if only he had said nothing. If only he had chosen silence instead. 
mm-hmm. and and it and it really it profoundly affected me because I'm a writer who relies on words on language who has to believe that there is a line of communication always open between us that there's a way that I can reach another person out of these solitudes so what does it mean when the only um, place of integrity is to say nothing that's devastating mm-hmm. and yet at the same time I think for Sparrow who's kind of the through line of the whole book that he's the composer who chooses to no longer make music because everything that he writes cannot express something that he feels is fundamental to himself and, and if he chooses to express what's not fundamental to himself he will be distorting his own soul in this music that he loves so much in a way he loves the music so much that he can't bear to make it anymore um, and I think that's devastating I think I think any artist any, any human being who, who's where the, the right to express oneself is taken away it leaves you um, in such a state of isolation and, and mm. it disconnects you from society so he tries to find a way around that in work and in life and in raising his daughter um, to speak in in the ways that are left to him Mm. I think it's um I think you're very right when you say that when you take away that like the ability to express yourself whether in language or through art or whatever was your primary means of expression, it cuts you off from society. It also cuts you off from yourself and what you mm-hmm. understood as yourself. Um and I know very, very early on in the book, um, Marie talks about the fact that one of her parents speaks Mandarin, mm-hmm. one of her parents speaks Cantonese yes. and she talks them in English. Did you have the same sort of experience when you were growing up? Yes, absolutely. No, no, not with that. Well, different. My mother speaks Cantonese, mm. and my father speaks Hakka, which is another minority language. So either they would uh, speak in English, or they would each speak their dialect, which the other could sort of understand. Um, but neither, but the children couldn't. Um, so sort of always in the crossroads of these languages, but with, with English as my mother tongue. Mm. But, but, but it's always going to be in English inflected by the languages of my parents. Even though I don't speak the languages, there's a certain like cultural, um, I don't know if cultural is the right word, but a kind of temperament inside the language that mm. then comes into the English language, you know? One thing I just wanted to say while I remember it is about the silence. Um, one of the things that is also kind of powerful about the, the concept is that in Chinese and I think in Japanese there is no there is no word for silence because the, the, the concept is not believed to really exist so they have many words for not being able to perceive sound but that does, doesn't accept that there is no sound so for instance the many words they have will refer to something like um, a sound that is uh, cease to be perceived um, or a sound that cannot be perceived with the ears but only with the mind you know so they have many nuances in ha- in in the um, in the in the conceptual framework of sound and silence it just doesn't really have an equivalent in the, in the language that's really interesting it almost suggests there's this idea that there's just a constant backtrack of something always playing music that everyone is always listening to but sometimes can't hear that's right can't hear with your ears but but can be perceived in other ways and i think also it's about moving the subject position because it's we think silence i've been silenced you have been silenced but i think in the 
Chinese conceptual framework, sound comes from the world itself, existence itself, so it can never be silence. It's not dependent on whether I can speak or you can speak, because the sounds is a is a constant, and the movement between sound and non-sound is much more nuanced. So there's a, a bit where you start to talk about the way that in Chinese you move from the year above to the year below, is it? Yes. So it's it's a bit like we, in the Chinese conceptual framework of time, we are facing the past. And it's so the past is ahead of us, mm. and the future is what's behind us. Because you can't see it. It's completely like uh, Walter Benjamin's Angel of History, the angel being pushed backward into the future and seeing the debris of the past piling up in front of him. It's, it's exactly how Chinese language works about time. So tomorrow is behind you, and yesterday is in front of you. I think there's a, there's a sort of echo in that, in the way the book is structured. Was that um, a sort of very deliberate set of... You, you know, with. we were talking about um, growing up in a without me speaking the Chinese language. Mm-hmm. It's such a funny thing because to me, the way time is understood in the conceptual frame, Chinese conceptual framework, is very instinctive to me. Mm-hmm. It makes complete sense to the way my mind works and my mind deals with time. So even though I don't have the language, I really have the conceptual framework, um, and so it comes naturally to me when I write in English that time would have that kind of elasticity and that past, present, and future. Um, because, you know, in Chinese, there's no tenses. There is no past tense or future tense. Everything is present. And I think that is that has always been a natural part of my writing, that it, it's almost like um, it's the English language that has to become more elastic to hold these things. And I think that is sometimes a struggle for readers of my work, is is how time works. But I also think fundamentally time is at the, at the thematic center of my work, the way it runs in our minds, the way that it merges and diverges with other times, the way that we are bodily here in one moment, but our, our emotions are in another moment. You know, I think that's actually quite natural to the human experience. Mm. And it's it's the English language that maybe makes things seem more linear, linear than they actually are. And that's that's actually an illusion. It's, I really like what you say about the idea that, you know, you're in one place but your emotions are in another. Um, it's almost like a form of time travelling to be, to even remember as a form of time travelling. Yes. Um, and to think about the future as a form of time travelling. Um in fact, I, th- I think something very similar happens in Dogs of the Perimeter, your book about the Khmer yes. Rouge. There's that sense that she, that Jaden, is travelling forward into the past. But also there are things that she can't really talk about or can't really see or doesn't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Because, And I think that happens in um, post-genocide, it happens in trauma, that mm. time divides and... I think it's especially difficult when it's a historical tragedy that has in many ways been erased from mainstream memory. So it's like the time exists but is invisible, but the time is inside that individual and never really stops unfolding and running, but they're in a world that's, that has forgotten that that time existed. Yeah. And I think that's very difficult. It's, it causes a rupture in the self and a rupture in how they can relate to the present moment. 
and my mother's Cambodian yes. and I sometimes like sometimes when I meet people like I'll say oh my mother's Cambodian they'll say oh I better not crack any uh, Khmer Rouge jokes then I'll be like that's it's such a bizarre thing to say because yes. to them of course it it feels like ancient history because it's both geographically distant mm-hmm. and the the time is a, a forgotten time but I want to say that's a very strange thing to say about a genocide that happened during my mother's lifetime. Yes. I've really resisted with Dogs at the Perimeter, and even with Do Not Say We Have Nothing, to say that this is a historical novel, because mm. it is not... It, it, yes, it deals with history, but this is a history of, of my generation, of our generation, and that, to me, is not history. This is a, a continuously unfolding moment that is not resolved and is not finished, and it's definitely not finished in Cambodia. Mm. And... Um, it is, it is surprising to me actually that I, I think if people understood the scale of the, of the of the geopolitics that led to the Cambodian genocide, and the aftermath of the way it it was handled afterwards, um, I don't think they could make those jokes. I think partly why it's possible to do that is because it's been so wiped from memory, mm. which only adds to the scale of the tragedy and. Um, and because Cambodians have been so extraordinarily resilient, the survivors have really wanted to face the future. You know, we're talking about which, which direction do you face, yeah. the past or the future, but they have done everything possible to turn their bodies um, so that their back is to the past and to, to build these lives where, where they, their children can be protected. And, oh, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that's an extraordinary thing. Like, it, I, and I think that's a kind of courage um, that has gone unacknowledged. I can't. I will be emotional. <laughs> no, it's funny. It's been it, yeah, that that Jackson's premiere came out in twenty eleven, and it's still. It's it's impossible to call these historical novels because they are so connected to they they are they are so unfolding. I mean, it would have been unfolding. As you say, through your childhood, through mm-hmm. teenage years, it's bound up in your identity. Mm-hmm. It's bound up in the identity of your parents. Mm-hmm. It's bound up more widely in the. As a result, it's kind of as much about the people who survive and then come to live in different places and bring mm-hmm. their culture and their language and their history with them, mm-hmm. as it is about the history, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, and actually, one of the things I find very interesting about um, the way you write about Vancouver and Montreal in these two books is that. Um, they seem both Canadian but also natural extensions mm-hmm. of the countries that the immigrants have left behind because it's they they belong there. They're, they're both of those places. Yes, and I think it can very be very discomforting for the reader because in Dogs at the Perimeter, I think the question that is part of the narrative is which is the which is the invisible place? Is it Cambodia or is it Montreal? Which is the real place? You know, because for some people. they don't recognize the Montreal and they see it as part of her projection onto that city Mm. but I would say that for a long time maybe a kind of narrative of how we live now is erasing narratives of how people living at the same time are living Mm. and and so in in Dogs at the Premier Montreal becomes the erased place and the narrative of Cambodia is completely so superimposed on top of its streets its cities its climate its people mm. and um, that can be very discombobulating <laughs> for the reader you know it's it's a very uncomfortable experience 
Um, but I think that's good. I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, that there would just be no way for you to write it that's comfortable. Absolutely. Um, and the same with uh, Do Not Say We Have Nothing. There's just no way you could write that as a, a simple linear narrative that takes the reader from one point of history to the present day because it just it doesn't work like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> whether you'd like to talk about more broadly um, uh, your, your, just your writing in general, what you're working on at the moment. Oh, oh, I'm working on something that's taking me in a completely different direction, which is kind of terrifying to me. Um, I think because the last two books have been very... these vast canvases that are, are um, you know, as we said, unresolved. And I actually think the next book is going to be a lot more intimate, um, much more personal. And I've been thinking a lot about women's lives and the way women's lives are expressed in, in literature in this moment and mm. about sexuality and about the, 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 and about being a, a, um, a woman of color, you know, about all these other things that are very complicated parts of ourselves. And I feel like there's a book in here that I have not yet seen that I would like to write. I think it's very much the same in Britain. We, mm-hmm. We're having a conversation that seems to only be about certain kind of middle-class things. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only does it miss um, an entire class of women, it misses an entire colour of women, I suppose, because mm-hmm. it's, it's mainly about mm-hmm. white feminism. Yes. Exactly. And then when we talk about people of colour, we tend to talk about second-generation women, not necessarily their parents or the histories of the countries they've come from, mm-hmm. and we don't really connect Yes. There's a strange disconnect. And, 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 and the sexuality, we tend to, if we're talking about non-white women, it tends to be talking about extremely conservative societies or extreme, like, kind of repression. Mm. But actually, there's a whole world in here of India, China, Japan, and the fascinating ways that they've dealt with sexuality and the ways that they express sexuality and different... Um, a, a, a different kind of sexual liberation for women that I think, and that is is long and old, mm. you know. And, and I think that's something I want to write about. I've been thinking a lot about Japanese erotic art, or um, about young women in contemporary China now. That it's there's so much to be mm. explored here. But again, the question is how to find the language, how to do it, how to how. So that's what I'm, I'm sort of. That's the that's in the back of my mind. Well, that sounds really exciting. I look forward to seeing how that goes. Thank you.